Tēnā koutou no mai hai to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, can the Greens and Labour create a new left-wing coalition? We know that we have to go further and faster than we've been able to do so in the last three years. Then, after yet another tumultuous week at the Beehive, in the midst of a global crisis, how are Parliament's lurid scandals, sackings and personal dramas affecting the voting public? We hit the road to find out. Well, I've just arrived in Palmerston North and, of course, it's been in the news this week. Can I do this without mentioning it? Of course I can. That story shortly. The Greens have launched their campaign for September's election with the slogan, Think Ahead. In recent days, co-leader James Shaw has spoken frankly about working alongside New Zealand First in government, describing Winston Peters' party as chaotic and obstructive. So, what would the Greens want to do if New Zealand First was out of the picture? Co-leaders James Shaw and Marama Davidson are with us this morning. Tēnā kōrua, welcome to Q&A. Morena. I want to look back so we can look forward. And James, I will start with you. You and Winston Peters have been trading blows this week. You described working with New Zealand First in government as a force of chaos. What has the last three years really been like? Well, Jack, first of all, uh, to give them some credit, we have done a lot during the course of the last term and all of the things that this government has done and that the Greens have achieved as part of this government have been with the consent of all three parties in the government. Um, but there have been times which have been very frustrating um, and we've found that at times, uh, you know, we'll do all the policy work, we'll provide all the options, think everything through um, and you think that you're going to get something over the line and then the rug gets pulled out from you at the last minute. And I think, you know, given the COVID situation and the need for a really strong, stable government right now, uh, that's a risk that I don't think is worth taking in the next term. But Marama, you say you are prepared to work with New Zealand First again, if that's what it comes down to. How can you trust them if they pull the rug out from underneath you at the last minute? don't think I've said those words explicitly there, Jack, but again... The trust it's, or, the, it's going or the rug to, out underneath you? Uh, the trust. I don't think I've said those words explicitly, but what mm. it will come down to, Jack, is the Greens are focused on our vision for Aotearoa and putting up a transparent range of solutions so people can see what we're about. We hope to get the most support we possibly can um, and then what will happen on election and the, the support we've got, the votes we've got and what our members decide we can do with that support is how those decisions will be made, Jack. Mm. What we know is that we've put up two priority policy costed areas, for example, already, our poverty action plan, our clean energy plan. We know that people want the Greens to stay strong and bold on really making those transformational gains. And so we're being upfront about what we would like to achieve um, with the most progressive government we can form. So Marama, let me just be very clear and ask you explicitly, do you trust New Zealand First? Well, look, I think um, politics at the moment is showing that people, New Zealanders, need to have trust in the democratic system. Mm. And, uh, well, n there are political parties being investigated. We've long called for... Um, transparent policy so that donations can be upfront for all political parties. So, Jack, so, so I think, do you trust them? I think all just, political just parties me, need to do clearly. better. Yeah. I think all political parties need to do a lot better so that New Zealanders can trust that we aren't connected to big corporations who are having a, an unfair say right. in making political decisions for our country. OK, you haven't answered that, but I will move on. James, <laughs> you, you are the Minister for Climate Change Reduction. 
Here we are at the end of a three-year term and agriculture, our biggest emitting industry, still isn't paying for its emissions and won't be paying for another two terms. New Zealand's emissions are continuing to increase. How have you not failed your supporters with this portfolio? Well, actually, in the most recent data that we've got, our emissions are starting to decrease. Um, the hardest part uh, of, of the whole climate change challenge is to bend the curve from a, a, a constant upwards trajectory, which we've been on for some time, and to get to bend that curve so that it's, you've got a sustained downward curve over time. Now, the reforms that we put through into the emissions trading scheme mean that we've introduced a cap on emissions for the first time, and so emissions should never be higher th than, than this year and should sink every year from now on. But that is a, like, we're waiting two years for, for the New Zealand's biggest emitting industry to actually start paying for its emissions. And even then, it comes with a 95% subsidy. This is your most important issue. So the Agricultural Emissions Work Programme that we set up, I've got a great deal of confidence, is going to uh, actually mm -hmm. achieve results before the pricing mechanism kicks in. You've got to remember there is a legislated target for both nitrous oxide and for biogenic methane. Uh, and, and actually farmers and the, and the wider sector have actually got to reduce their emissions uh, over the course of the coming 10 years. They, if they wait until 2025 mm. to start, then it's going to be a much steeper trajectory, and they're very aware of that. But, but when it comes to the Zero Carbon Act, the Climate Change Commission has no power to enforce any of its recommendations or to enforce the path that's laid out under its framework, does it? It, it can't fine industries, it can't, it can't charge anyone. Well, there's a compliance regime inside the emissions trading scheme. So uh, part, uh, companies that fail to meet their obligations actually do face a financial penalty. That's under the ETS, they, but not, under, not, not, not with the Climate Change Commission. No, that's correct. But my point is that there is a, there is a penalty attached mm. to not meeting your obligations. Uh, and so, you know, we would expect... You know, that, but, but that again, that though, that's continues. under the ETS, right? And so we have it. We have a, the ETS isn't going to be charging agriculture for another two terms. Then it comes with a 95% subsidy. I mean, I mean, you, you are the minister for climate change reduction, the first Greens co-leader co to hold that portfolio. But at the end of your term, there is no mechanism under the Zero Carbon Act with the Climate Change Commission to levy fines or enforce any of its recommendations. How will you improve? The state of things, like you, you say, this is this is success. Well, what I'm what I'm saying is that we've become one of the first countries in the world to legislate for a pricing mechanism mm. for the agricultural sector. Um, we've got a work program in place to start to reduce emissions and to develop a pricing system for farm level uh, em emissions. Uh, look, would I would I have liked to have gone further than we have? Mm. Absolutely, I would. But we've got to carry the country with us and we've actually got to make some progress. And for 20 or 30 years, we've made zero progress at all. In fact, we've gone backwards when it comes to not just agricultural emissions, but carbon dioxide emissions from industry as well. And on, all, on every single front, I've been really clear about this, Jack, yeah. on every single front, we need to be making a lot more progress than we have been able to, not just in the last three years, but in the last 30 I'm actually really proud of the work that we've done over the course of the last three years. I think we've made more progress on climate change than the last 30 years of governments combined, and it's starting to have an effect. You can see industry starting to invest in cleaner alternatives already, even though the price isn't yet uh, high enough to you know, induce the full-scale action. Marama, what, what do you think is the Greens' biggest achievement they've achieved in this three-year term that would not have been achieved 
if it was just a Labor New Zealand First government? Well, I'm really proud that one of the first things that we were able to do with the Greens at the heart of government was ban new offshore oil and gas exploration. That is something that our people, our party, have been campaigning for for decades. And that's one of many things with the Greens uh, at the table and at the heart of government have been able to achieve. Uh, and I think the point here is, Jack, and, I, and it relates to the first question that you asked, it's not about... Uh, what the Greens, uh, what other political parties the Greens think we can trust. It's clear for people to see what things can get done, what the Greens have been pushing and fighting to the wire for, and that's what we are asking voters to give us the support mm. for. Just recently, Jack, just uh, two days ago on Friday, we were able to announce the Progressive Home Ownership Scheme, which is going to help more families to own a home that wouldn't have otherwise. We were able to celebrate $800 million of new green infrastructure, $124 million to reduce our waste, putting the mm. uh, climate change back into the Resource Management Act, and thousands of green jobs, jobs for nature around the country. And, These and are the things that the Greens have pushed, yeah. among many things, you to have Sorry to interrupt. You, you have released a document as well with, with policy plans in a wide range of areas. So, James, what would be your top priorities if it comes to a coalition or support negotiation after the election? So the document that you're referring to yesterday is a broad vision for the country. It provides the foundation mm. and it's a reference document so that people can see how our caucus and our ministers will be guided in the everyday decisions that we have to make. On top of that document, there are about six high-priority uh, policy areas that we're releasing. Two of those we've already released, one of which was the Poverty Action Plan that Martimer released about a month ago. Following that, a couple of weeks later, I released our Clean Energy Plan, and we've got a few more in the tank uh, for, the, for the coming weeks. Those things will be our top priorities mm -hmm. in the negotiations. And then the document that you're talking about um, uh, is about saying, OK, what else can the government program achieve? And on the, on the sort of day-to-day -day stuff that comes up, what will we be guided by? What about tax? We're in the midst of a recession. Why is now the time to be hitting people with new taxes? Jack, government revenues are down. Expenditure is up dramatically. Um, the government's currently spending something on the order of 17 years' worth of discretionary um, uh, spend, uh, discretionary budgets. The next parliament will be responsible for some of the biggest decision, uh, decisions um, about um, you know, future policy and about expenditure that we've seen in generations, possibly since the Great Depression. It's, you've got to go into this election talking about revenue. You, it's, it's actually, I don't think it's credible not yeah. to say how are you going to pay to mm. maintain even I mean, existing public services, so, let alone anything else. Yeah, well, so, oh, this is the thing, right? Some people will say, yes, you have to talk about revenue, but you also have to talk about expenditure. And Marama, just going through your document yesterday, there are lots of policies that some people might call nice to have. So, for example, an office for, for rainbow communities, a minister for animal welfare. Do you think you're you're reading the room? In, in these difficult yeah. economic times, should we be looking to 
expand our expenditure in areas such as these? It is exactly coming through COVID-19 that we have an opportunity to reimagine an Aotearoa that does take better care of all of our people, not just a few, and our planet and our living systems, our environment a lot better. That is exactly what people are calling for now. People are realising that a country that sets the rules to maintain a few people being able to live comfortably and thousands and thousands of more people struggling to live decent lives every day is simply not acceptable and not sustainable. And taxes love, Jack. Tax is about making sure that everyone has enough to live, that we've got the public services, the water services that are keep going to keep our water and our people well, and it recognises mm. that we have got enough to resolve these issues. It needs to be spread more evenly and more fairly, and that uh, it only the tax, for example, that we have proposed in the Poverty Action Plan only affects 6% uh -huh. of the population and it won't end up with those people lining up for food outside work and Something tells offices. me those people do not agree that tax is love. No, hey. I want to push back on that, Jack, because we have had support from across economic backgrounds, people who know that it is in all of our interests to make sure everyone has enough to live decent lives. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Marama Davidson and James Shaw, the co-leaders of the Greens. Thank Thanks, you. Jack. After the break, sheesh, another week of turmoil in Wellington. Shenanigans are the shenanigans. There's always shenanigans in politics. Maybe so, but what do voters want our politicians to be focused on instead? And the Democratic strategist who helped Bill Clinton win the presidency with his take on 2020. Right now we have a giant infected wisdom tooth. Let's get the wisdom tooth out, then we'll talk about our diet going forward. But Right now, the nation is in pain. And... Kia ora i te whanau. Welcome back to Q&A. What do we want from our politicians? Today marks exactly four months since New Zealand went into the Level 4 lockdown. Although the immediate crisis has subsided, the ongoing fallout will affect us for years. But in recent weeks, much of the political discourse has focused not on debate or policy or the response to and recovery from COVID-19, but on individual politicians themselves, their party ructions, their ambitions and their failings. David Clark was forced to resign after he defied his own department's advice during lockdown. I've been a bit of an idiot, um, if I'm being frank. Simon Bridges went from chairing the Epidemic Response Select Committee to being ousted as national leader. It's been a heck of a ride and uh, a roller coaster really of highs and of lows. Deputy Leader Paula Bennett announced she's leaving politics. New national leader Todd Muller had a difficult start. MP Hamish Walker was accused of racism and responded by leaking private details of COVID-19 patients. Michael Woodhouse used Walker's leak to criticise the government, despite having had similar private data fed to him by the same National Party source, although he didn't release it. Hello. Amy Adams, unretired from politics and then re-retired. Todd Muller stood down as leader. Nikki Kay stood down altogether. Thank you so much for the, the opportunity. Judith Collins released a book and then won the National Party leadership. And we are a team that is absolutely determined to take the fight to the government. Dr Yang Jian continued to refuse English language interviews. It's lovely to finally talk to you. Okay. Then stood down. 
In just the last few weeks, the Serious Fraud Office announced it's investigating Labour Party donations. Andrew Falloon was revealed to have sent pornographic images to multiple women, including a teenager. And the Workplace Relations Minister admitted a workplace relation. Yes, this has been an extraordinary period. The human chaos of New Zealand's parliamentary politics has rivaled the uncertainty of the COVID-19 world. And when the various stories about Andrew Falloon and Ian Lees Galloway hit the headlines this week, reporter Fina Owen hit the road to speak with different Kiwis about the issues they would rather our politicians were focused on. Get out of town. We want to hear from voters in the regions. So we're driving a giant loop through 11, yes, 11 electorates, stopping first on the Kapiti Coast, where there's a higher than average number of superannuitants. So here's local grey power head, Rachel Cursip. Very much it's an attractive place for retirees, but what we're also finding is with the prospect of Transmission Gully, people are starting, families are starting to move out of Wellington and live up at Kapiti. Biggest issue, she says, is health. And we're very conscious of the fact that in Kapiti, we don't have a hospital. In order to get hospital treatment, you have to go to Palmerston North or down to Wellington. And we're off to Palmerston North with a quick stop at the Waikanae Golf Club, where pro shop owner Oliver Maxwell offers his commentary on the recent behaviour of politicians. Shenanigans are the shenanigans. There's always shenanigans in politics. Oliver's business has come through COVID well. We were able to get the wage subsidy here for my business, the golf shop, um, which allowed me to keep my staff member on in, in a time where we were very uncertain whether we'd survive. And he's not hiding his colours. I won't be voting Labour um, because, uh, you know, I'm a pity, pity big fan of national. Further up the coast, house buyers are discovering Levin, but the flow-on effect is that rents are climbing. Over at the town's Salvation Army HQ, Captain Chris Collings describes Levin as a town with a lot of need. When I first arrived here a few years ago, there's, from what I recall, three or four people on the social housing list. Now it's over 100, you know, and, and just, just four or five years, you know, so it's, it's really, really um, ballooned. Um, so housing's an issue, you know, there's, there's not enough houses. Gangs are an issue that's, that's starting to become a bit of a problem in town. Well, I've just arrived in Palmerston North and, of course, it's been in the news this week. Can I do this without mentioning it? Of course I can. No comment on that one. <laughs> Blair Alabaster doesn't want to talk about it either. The real estate consultant and chair of the local chamber of commerce is staying focused on what he insists local businesses need. To change the government, if that's what's going to happen, we want a good, we want to see good stability um, and some good business decisions to be made, and no more compliance costs that are um, laid over the businesses. There's some nervousness, he says, about the end of the wage subsidy, but also some good news. The housing market's performing extremely well. But otherwise, yeah, we're very confident here in the Manawatu. But before we leave the Manawatu, a quick visit to Massey University. It's been a disruptive year for students across the country. What do they want out of the election? Stefan Bieberstein, who's president of the Students' Association, tells us most of the talk has been around the cannabis referendum. I'll tell you this, um, I have students coming up to me in the supermarket asking me uh, about, about cannabis and about uh, pill testing as well. Um, they haven't been asking you for cannabis? No, no, not specifically. <laughs> but election issue number one, pushing for a universal education income. Wouldn't, wouldn't be means tested, and it means that all people in full-time tertiary study uh, would have uh, a guaranteed income. 
First off, though, Stefan just wants students to vote. And I think if we want New Zealand to work in a way that suits young people and suits uh, forward thinking, uh, we need more young people to vote. Back on the road and over the Pahia to a track to the northern Wairarapa. Well, we turned off back there in Mangatanoka and we're in real hill country, rural heartland now, on our way to see Lincoln and Liz Grant, and they're going to tell us about their issues going into this election. The Grant's sheep and beef farm is remote, but they're connected in with other farmers wanting a change in land use policy. We want probably common sense uh, policy around the environment is the most important thing, and that is not dishing out millions of dollars to carbon investors to carpet our good hill country farms and pine trees. The grants point out that in the time of COVID, there's growing demand for New Zealand produce. People around the world think New Zealand you know, produces food that they can trust, so let's produce more of it, not less. And down through the Wairarapa and into the Hutt Valley. Lower Hutt kebab shop co-owner Yasser Abuzaid reckons he could be the only one in the country who cooks fresh falafels while you wait. Just cooking for you fresh. Yeah. It was his family's dream to own a kebab shop. They finally bought it at the beginning of this year. And then COVID coming, you know, it's very, very bad luck. Yas is looking forward to voting for the second time in his life. He's a refugee. As a Palestinian living in Iraq, he never held citizenship. This country is my dream. Like, uh, I mean, I used all my life no citizen. So this country gave me the citizen. So I'm grateful for this country all my life. And Yasser's issues going into an election, he told us he didn't have any. Uh, yeah, I love it. Not I like, I love it, this government. Because, I mean, you mean Jacinda Ardern? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, um, I give her like ding. So just seven voters and their takes, and one's making dinner. It's been a long day. Fina Owen with that report. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. There is so much to talk about with our panel this week. They're all here after the break. And then President Trump has cancelled the Republican National Convention. Will COVID-19 cost him another term? Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A and welcome to our panel this morning. Lawyer and former gallery reporter Kat McLennan, economist Shamavil Yakub, and public relations consultant and former political staffer Thomas Pryor. Kia ora koutou, welcome to Q&A. I want to begin uh, by reflecting on yet another crazy week in Parliament. A and maybe we could start by talking about the culture of Parliament. Kat, you were in the gallery for many years. What was it like when you were in there? Tēnā koe. People might find it hard to believe, but I think things have actually improved since then, <laughs> partly because Parliament has become quite a lot more diverse. Yeah. So the first year I was there in the budget lock-up, there was only me and one other woman. We were the only female reporters and no Māori or anyone other than Pākehā. So, and I think what's also been good in recent weeks is male MPs actually talking openly about mental health and nowadays there's also less of the drinking culture. Um, mm. I think it's an unfortunate mischaracterisation though when people say that, oh, it's been a terrible couple of weeks in politics, it's scandal, we've got to get back to the real issues. Mm. As well as the 
raised issues that have been in the media relating to MPs. There have been reports of um, serious allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the youth wings of mm. three parties. Sexual harassment and sexual assault are in every part of every society in every country. So it's really to dismiss it as trivial and we've got to get back to the main issues is very, very unfortunate. Yeah, uh, yeah. That being said, we have had myriad scandals in just the last couple of weeks. Thomas, you worked in Westminster. How does, how does New Zealand compare to that? Yeah, sort of bad, bad, and bad and badder, I guess. I mean, I must say, I think I think Westminster was worse uh, when I was there, and that was only only a few years ago. Um, and I, I think that's just a, a, a product of the particular mm. culture there. And and listen, I think you know the, the the culture in New Zealand Parliament is 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 not great. I mean, there's some there's some fundamentals about the way the place works that that, that make it not a great place to work. But I think it's also important to say it can also be an amazing amazing place to work, right? And there's a lot of people there who do mm. who do amazing things. So I think we. We need to be a little bit careful not to condemn everyone who works in the in the parliamentary precinct. But you know, I think I think to Kat's point, uh, Westminster in comparison to Wellington has still got a, a, a heavy drinking culture. There's still a lot of bars in the precinct that are open until late at night, mm. uh, and you've still got probably vastly more MPs and and peers uh, behaving behaving badly. So um, yeah, we're certainly not alone. I think in, in having issues and challenges around the, the culture in Parliament. Now I'm going to assume that we all agree uh, it's right for Andrew Falloon to be gone immediately. But let's talk about Ian Lee's Galloway. Do you think the Prime Minister did the right thing, Shamabil, in, in forcing him to stand down? Well, I think given the power imbalance, this was a decision that had to be made. But I don't think we should conflate the two quite extreme differences between mm. those cases. So Falloon's case was way more extreme in my mind, and I think that really needed to be dealt Police with. Police are investigating, yeah. Absolutely. And so one is a, you know, quite a serious allegation. The other one is very serious, but I think it's much more to do with the power imbalance and the abuse of power that might take place. Um, both, I mean, ultimately, I think you had no other decision you could make. Yeah, what do you think, Kat? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the PM did exactly the right thing and acted quickly. Um, it was to do with the power imbalance, and, I mean, that's at the core of all these problems in politics, mm. that we have had a power structure that, for a long time, Pākehā males have been on top, and they think that they're entitled to mm. access to women's bodies, regardless of consent. This is, a consent. this is a consensual relationship. Yeah, but the issue is, well... We're assuming that, OK? Yeah, yeah. But the issue is he was the Minister for Workplace Relations and Safety, and I completely agree. The PM has, you know, running on kindness, not taking part in dirty politics, trying to do politics better. So not only she, but the ministers have got to model that. And also... Um, the woman worked in his office, she's in a subordinate position, and so we're all assuming it was consensual, but... Every woman knows, you know, that puts you in a vulnerable position in the workplace. If you turn a man down, what might that mean for advancement? So it's a lot more complicated, I think, than mm. just saying it was consensual, therefore there's no issue. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me, the mere fact that we are talking about this um, shows how successful Judith Collins and National have been at turning attention away from Andrew Falloon. Is it, is it too cynical of me to suggest, Thomas, that they did a very effective job in diverting attention from their own MP? No, I don't think so. And I mean, I think it was interesting. It was a, it was a, it was a classic move from the playbook, right, to, um, to throw the suggestion out there. I mean, Judith Collins has been very clear saying she didn't 
tip News Hub off to ask her that question. Um, you guess, believe that? Uh, I, I struggle a little bit. <laughs> it seems very convenient, but, um, you know, let's uh, take her at face value. But no, and it's certainly, uh, if that was the case, it has reset the debate that it's now a much broader discussion about the culture at Parliament rather than uh, the culture within, within the National Party. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's been successful or effective there for four. Let's, let's give Judith Collins the benefit of the doubt here and presume she didn't tip off uh, News Hub in asking that question. Did she do the right thing in answering it honestly? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think if you are, if that was a genuine question that was put to her, uh, you, see because there's a very there's a real difference, yeah, right, in the way that the, the prime minister and Judith Collins handled allegations about their respective. There is absolutely, and I think listen, well, no, actually, I think both of them handled their respective allegations well, and they both acted quickly in appropriate time frames and, and took decisive action. Except that Judith Collins was the one who said, I, I've heard an allegation, I've passed it on to the Prime Minister, that, whereas the Prime Minister said, I've got an allegation, didn't go public, let Judith Collins that's, come out. That's right, and I think actually full credit to the Prime Minister for the way she's handled mm. that. And, and, and I think voters will see that and will, and will recognise that. And in fact, I think actually the way the Prime Minister has handled the allegations around Ian Lees Galloway is, 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 is a really positive example of, of what to do, and also the way her office handled the allegations around, around Andrew Falloon. So I think her office and, and her deserve, deserve credit for that. What do you think, Shamavi? Was Judith Collins out of line, or did she handle it appropriately? Well, I mean, <clears throat> there were no easy decisions here, right? And I think um, the main thing was that we still had to get the right outcomes. Um, I would have liked to have seen Judith Collins make a more quicker and more drastic decision with Falloon, just given the gravity of the allegations and the offending. Mm. Kate, you talked about the, the mental health conversation that has kind of surrounded some of the events in Parliament over the last couple of weeks. How did you feel about Andrew Falloon's initial press release citing mental health issues? That seems very unfortunate, but there have been now a series of male MPs who have talked about mental health, and mm. I think that that's really healthy, and I hope that that does continue, because when I was there, no male MP would ever have acknowledged a mental health problem but I mean as well as dealing with the issues of sexual harassment um, I think that we've got some other really big issues to address in our political system. Mm. One is our short termism but also I think our adversarial system of politics is serving us really really badly. I mean we've got major issues, we need hundreds of thousands of jobs, we've got inequality to deal with, colonisation, climate change and I think I really hope that we can work towards having a more cooperative style of politics. I know that many people will call that naive, but we've got serious issues and how we've been doing things is just not constructive. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the Greens, it's not only about the policy they're putting out, it's how they model doing politics. And so just last Monday, they had a memorial for, Je for Jeanette Fitzsimons. And imagine if all our MPs operated politically the way that Jeanette Fitzsimons did, we would have a far different parliament and political system. Yeah, I think you hit it on an interesting point too, in, in that this is arguably the most important election we have had in decades. <laughs> we are in the midst of, of a crisis like no other, and yet we are focused on the varied lurid, uh, lurid scandals um, and, and personal dramas rather than policy. What do you want to be talking about at this stage of the campaign? Or what should our politicians be debating, Shamabir? Well, I think, uh, firstly, an election is really about the nature of government rather than the principles of government in some ways, right? That's, we don't have control over that. But we need to take the conversation back to the principles, as Kat was talking about. What is it that we want government to do when they're in power? And, you know, we've got this major issue. We've got, you know, this huge crisis, once in a lifetime. We've got debt that's going out to the levels we had last seen in the early 90s. 
1990s, we're going to have to have some very serious conversations about things like debt, taxes, industrial policy, jobs, welfare, whether or not we can maintain our existing services like health. This is not a time when we should be distracted, but not doesn't mean that those things are not important. So really for me, it's about both of those things. We still got to deal with the culture and the problems of politics. Mm. But what are the issues that really matter for New Zealanders? What are the values that we want them to uphold? And I think that conversation hasn't really started with the exception of the Greens putting out their policy papers. Yeah, there are a couple of months until the election, so there is still time. But have you seen anything close to a vision from either major party, Thomas? No, I mean, it is, as some people said, it's only really the, the, the minor parties that have made an effort, I think, to give both, both Greens and Act their, their credit. They are you know, developing and putting out detailed policy documents. And I think actually Labour, Labour are particularly guilty of this. I mean, the Prime Minister appears to be reluctant to even acknowledge there's an election campaign coming up that she sort of seems to think the election pitch is simply, uh, you know, we did a good job for COVID and that's that's all that's required. So I think the, the lack of vision and substantial policy documents from either National or Labour at, at, at this stage is, is, is pretty poor, actually. And as you say, there's two months to go. Uh, so I think it's, it's really time for those parties to start rolling out their, their policy visions. And frankly, I think it's what voters want. I think voters are pretty turned off by the kind of... Talk Do you think that? Do you, see, I, I wondered about that a lot, and, and I know the media plays a role in this, and it's a, sort of a chicken and egg thing. You know, I think we all say, oh, why aren't we talking about the issues? Why aren't we talking about policy? But if you ask the average voter in the street, are they really concerned with policy, or are they kind of drawn to the circus? I think they're drawn to the circus in sort of a voyeuristic way, and that it's sort of, you know, watching a car crash in slow motion sort of thing. But no, I think, I think fundamentally, I think especially this election, yeah. having been through what is, or still going through what is an incredibly challenging economic period for New Zealand, I think there is a, a greater appetite for, for, a, for yeah. a robust... Um, you know, well, well-intentioned, well-formed policy debate between the two major parties to lay out their vision of what New Zealand's going to look like. It's interesting to consider some comments made by National's finance spokesperson, Paul Goldsmith. Of course, um, National is yet to release its full economic plan and are planning to do so in the next couple of weeks. But he's promising to reduce debt to 30% of GDP within a decade. Shamabir, what would have to happen for that to occur? Magic. <laughs> How so? It's not possible. You can't cut taxes you know, pay down debt, keep services as they are. Something has to give. And the reality is that right now we should not be thinking about trying to get that debt down. The interest rates are so low. We should be thinking about making sure we deal with the crisis. We should make sure that we're realistic and set a gradual and long-term path back to something that's sustainable. You know, 30% debt target is, it's kind of arbitrary. Mm. There is no reason why we need to rush to it because it would create immense damage as we did in the 1980s by slashing welfare, slashing core government services. We do not want to go back to that. See, that's interesting, isn't <coughs> it? Because every time I've asked the major parties over the last you know, few weeks on Q&A, how we're going to pay off $170 billion in debt. They say, well, we'll grow the economy. We'll just, we'll grow the economy. I mean, we can't rely on immigration as we have in the past. We can't necessarily rely on the tertiary sector as we have in the past, but we'll grow the economy. Easy as that. Is that realistic? Well, we've talked about growing the economy and increasing productivity for many decades. We don't mm. seem to be doing very well with it. So realistically, I think we need to have a conversation about tax, but it doesn't have to be immediate. I think this is about setting a long-term vision. And I think what Thomas was talking about before as well is the values thing. Mm. What's the long-term value that we want out of our out of a nation? And I think by and large, we want the right kinds of things, right? A good public service, good public services. We want to make sure that we have basic access to amenities. But that means that we're gonna to have to pay more taxes. There is no going mm. around it. But we don't want to raise taxes now. Nobody's saying you should do it now. Do it later, but have the conversation. I think that's a conversation that's really gonna heat up, not this election, but the election after. Kat, what do you think the Greens can learn from this term in Parliament when it comes to any future potential negotiations about support or coalition? Or well, agreement? I think the Greens take a longer 
long-term approach to politics and so they get a lot of criticism that they haven't achieved this and they haven't achieved that. Obviously they're hoping that it's just going to be Labour and them next time so they'll have more bargaining power. But I really hope, you know, following on from what you said, I completely agree with what Marama said and Shamabel said tax is love and I would really love us to discuss tax because this is what has kept us and other countries going during this pandemic. And it's really hypocritical that people who have for decades complained about paying tax and advocated tax cuts were then some of the mm. first people holding their hand out for the wage subsidy. And there's a certain interest group who I'd have expected never to hear from again who took the wage subsidy completely contrary to their principles. Tax is actually the foundation of a civilised society. So I think if we are really going to address the big issues that we're mm. confronting, we need to talk about these things. All right. Thank you all for your time and insights this morning. Thomas Pryor, Kat, Kat McLennan and Shamabil Yakub. Last election, the Opportunities Party won almost five times as many party votes as ACT, but without a multi-millionaire backer. What chances do they really have in September? And could President Trump pull out of November's election? A long-time Democratic strategist says there's every chance. You're seeing the Republican Party fracture right in front of you. And he's got to decide, is a humiliating, devastating defeat worse for him than it is to just resign and say, just tell people I will come back and run in 2024. Kia ora koutou, welcome back. It's tough being a minor party outside of Parliament in New Zealand. Last election, the Opportunities Party won almost 2.5% of the vote, but without an electorate seat, that was only half of what they needed to make it into Parliament. Gareth Morgan is no longer leading or financing the party, but Leader Jeff Simmons is with us this morning. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, Jack. What are you offering this election that should make voters listen? We are offering more time spent on business and less business time. Uh, we, you know, we seem to be in the in the biggest uh, biggest election of a lifetime, as your panel is saying. We're making some lifetime long investment decisions that are going to affect the country, and we are focused on really making a really making a difference to the country going forward in terms of particularly the cost of housing uh, and making sure that all Kiwis have the chance to prosper in life. Tell us about the UBI. Well, so the idea is 250 bucks a week goes to everyone and that gets rid of the welfare trap. It honours unpaid, uh, unpaid work and makes sure that work pays for people. Uh, also, as a callback to your former point, it would act as a universal student allowance as well. You've criticised the Greens' tax policy. Does that mean you wouldn't introduce any wealth taxes? Well, our policy on tax is that housing should pay the same amount of tax as mm. other forms of investment. What the Greens are talking about with their welfare tax would completely eliminate any incentive to invest in our country. And we know that this is right at this time we need to invest. Uh, you know, like as as we're saying with things like the climate emergency, we need to invest a billion dollars a year uh, by 2050 to move to a zero carbon economy. So that is going to take businesses investing, the Greens wealth tax would kill that. You are standing in a number of electorates. Where do you think is the Opportunities Party's best shot? 
Well, we are putting a special focus on the seat of Uharu in Wellington, uh, where we came third last time, and we have a great candidate there. I'm also standing in Rangatai, which is going to be a really fun contest, because I think Labour have really taken that seat for granted. Is it tough being a small party outside of Parliament? How difficult is it to get traction? Yeah, look, I mean, we don't have a sugar daddy anymore, as you pointed out, uh, but... With National and Freefall and Labour really coasting to, to this election, I think if Kiwis want a real contest of ideas, as your panel said, they're going to have to look to the minor parties, and that's a big opportunity for top. You did reasonably well in the last election, 2.4% of the Thanks, party Jack. vote. Uh, but of course, the sugar daddy, as you named him, was at the helm. Do you think upon reflection, having Gareth Morgan in that position damaged top? Well, look, you know, there's two schools of thought there. He certainly got us airtime. Whether that was positive for Top is, is another story. This time round, we are focused on talking about the issues uh, rather than playing personality politics. People, Kiwis see enough personality politics playing out with all of these scandals uh, and all of this vote buying that's going on during this election. When parties do actually talk about the issues, all they do is want to buy votes. It really is sickening. We need some people talking about what's in the longer term interest of New Zealand. Is Gareth Morgan still involved in TOP? No, he has no involvement in the party anymore. We're now a movement. So we TOP in 2019 had more donors than any, all other political parties put mm. together. That really shows the support, the grassroots support that is behind us. Uh, I have to ask this only because uh, when we announced you were going to be on the show today, we had so many people write in and ask, and you can clear it up. Is there a cat-related policy? No, we do not have any cat-related policy. I love cats. I also love birds. Uh, you know, we, we don't have any particular stance on that issue. We're focused on the, the big issues like housing, the UBI, and this massive investment that we've got coming mm. out of COVID. It's got to be good for business, and it's got to be good for the environment, particularly reducing our emissions. If you find yourself in a position post-September where you can go into either a support or coalition negotiation with Labour or National, how do you decide who to support and what are your priorities? It's all about getting the best deal for current and future generations of Kiwis, Jack. We're prepared to work with both the major parties and you've got to be to be able to get decent bargaining power. We saw that. You look at New Zealand First and the Greens this time round, New Zealand First got $3 billion, the Greens got $100 million. That's 30 times the bargaining power. So we've got to be able to work with both. The number one priority we see is the housing crisis. You know, we have huge costs of housing and we also have a climate crisis. The answer to that is a fundamental re-engineering of our cities so that Kiwis have an affordable place to live rather than spending all their time speculating on the housing market. And from top's best case scenario to the worst case scenario, if you don't make it in in September, will you stand again in 2023? Oh, look, we have a fantastic group of young candidates coming through. Top is all about uh, is all about reaching a younger audience and encouraging them to vote, giving them, giving current and future generations real hope. Uh, so I think you know we have an incredible team coming through: small business people, economists, lawyers, and scientists. And I'm confident that Top is going to be in good shape going forward. What about you, though? Would you have another go? Well, I'm starting to feel a bit old compared to the rest of my party, Jack. You know, we're really focused on that millennial vote. I'm Gen X, so I'm happy right now leading top into, the, into this election. But there's so much talent.
talent coming mm. through. Frankly, I think my job's going to be at risk. All right. Thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. There's Jeff Simmons from the Opportunities Party. After the break, what will happen if Donald Trump loses and then refuses to leave the White House? The senior ranks of the United States military cannot stand him. They would be more than delighted to perform an extraction procedure. It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> One of the 20th century's most famous political phrases was used by Bill Clinton as part of his successful strategy to win the US presidency from George H.W. Bush. The phrase was first coined by American political consultant James Carville, who spent decades as a top Democratic Party consultant and rose to international fame after he was portrayed in the documentary The War Room. How are you? Nice to see you. Stay focused. Talk about things that matter to people. We love Hillary's new patriotism thing. It's the economy, stupid. Speak from your heart tonight. I mean, that's all that matters. Read my lips. It's the most famous broken promise in the history of American politics. Let them spin. We will win. He is so yesterday. If I think of an old calendar, I think of George Bush's face on it. Landslide. I like the way this thing feels. Oh, I love that film. Today, James Carville still keenly analyzes US politics. As you'll see, the Ragin' Cajun, as he's known, still has a wicked turn of phrase. And I began by asking for his assessment of the state of the 2020 race. Three and a half months out, what are the chances Donald Trump wins re-election? Pretty close to zero. I mean, he's been totally exposed as a buffoon. Uh, the country is falling apart, and people want change in the United States. It's literally that simple. And I think uh, Joe Biden has done a good job so far. I think he will continue to do a good job. And I'm very confident that he'll win in November. Uh, people are, are, are sick of living like this in the United States. I mean, look at in, in New Zealand. I mean, y'all got to beat this thing back. You have actual intelligent leadership in your country, both civic leadership, political leadership, business leadership, civic, you know, all across the board. We're, we're, we're a basket case. I think we're going to get better pretty soon, but right now we're not doing very well at all. More than 4 million people in the US have been affected with coronavirus. A thousand deaths a day are being registered. Can you pin all of Trump's problems on the virus? No, it was, it, it's the, it, it, part of it is coronavirus. Part of it is the criminality. Part of it is the incompetence. Part of it is the arrogance. I mean, there, there are so many things that go into this. He was going to lose before the coronavirus. What the coronavirus did is expose all of the traits that I, I talked to you about. And people across the country, if you look at polling, you look at anecdotal evidence, you talk to people, they're sick of this. They want to change. And November can't get here fast enough. Not, not, not at all fast enough. Four years ago, Democrats, like yourself, were feeling pretty confident at this stage of the race as well. Does that give you any pause? No. I mean, look, uh, the, the polling said that Hillary would win by 3.5. She won the popular vote by 2.1. We had a distributional fluke here. We're not looking at anything like that right now. Uh, there were a lot of events that can came together in 2016 that produced an unfortunate result of which the United States is paying for terribly today. 
I don't see those events being replicated at all. In the last few days, we've seen Trump change his messaging and his strategy around COVID-19. Is that because he's being hurt in the polls? Look, I, I don't know if the polls are going to tighten a little bit right now. They're, they're, they're pretty much a blowout. There's some mm. poll shows winding up 13 points in Florida. My God. Uh, he's going to lose. He's going to lose bad. The Republicans are going to lose the Senate. It's going to be a devastating election for them. They deserve the, the beating that they're going to get. And it, it's, the American people are going to administer a severe beating to the Republican Party, which will be well-deserved. Uh, from there, I, I hope we can get our, I don't know, mojo back. I hope the United States can cooperate with countries like New Zealand and, and other allies and friends we have around the world. And, and again, be what we should be, and that is a, a place that represents a, a great idea. And right now, we don't do that. I think people understand that, they recognize that, and they want to change it. I, I know I do. What about Trump, though? If indeed he is beaten in November, will he leave the White House? Look, the senior ranks of the United States military cannot stand him. They would be more than delighted to perform an extraction procedure. They would be glad to go in there and pull him out themselves. These four-star generals and these admirals, they would be delighted to do that. And these guys still remain in pretty good shape. No, he's, do not worry. He will be out of there come January 20th, 21st, 2021. James, I saw in an interview you suggested Trump may not even run in November. Is that a serious possibility? I mean, yes. We've got a, a long way to go between nine and Every day his situation deteriorates. Every day you're seeing Republicans pulling away from him. You're even seeing Liz Cheney, the daughter of the former vice president, uh, Dick Cheney, pulling away. You're starting to see Ted Cruz. I mean, you're seeing the Republican Party fracture right in front of you. And he's got to decide is a humiliating devastating defeat, worse for him than it is to just resign and say, just tell people I will come back and run in 2024. I think, I still think there's a good chance he does that. His political situation deteriorates by the, not by the day, by the hour. As soon as you turn your computer on, your cell phone, it's something, some other devastating piece of news he's getting. So, I, you know, I don't think the Republican Party can save itself in November, but they could get they could get him and force him to, to rethink this, and they could probably mm. do a little bit better than they're going to do right now. What is Joe Biden's strategy at this point, then? Well, I think he's... Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think he, the, his, the things he's doing are very smart. I'm not a person that says, oh, no. And, of course, he's going to have a vice presidential nominee. He's got a 100-page compact that he has with Senator Sanders, while idiots in the media says he has no vision for a second term. He's laid out one of the most forward-looking progressive agendas that any candidate has ever done. And uh, I think he's doing fine. I think he's doing fine. And, and no attacks on him are working, and I, I doubt that they will. What would be your advice if you were advising the Biden campaign heading into the debate season? Talk about change. Joe Biden because it's time for a change. And when people think of change, they think of everything. Uh, not just a change in tone, a change in the way we treat each other, a change in the way that we treat other countries, 
It just go back and it's real simple. Just treat other people in other nations the way that you would want to be treated yourself. And I think that the Biden's Vice President Biden has that ultimate sense of decency. He has the kind of experience. I think the world will be delighted to, if not embrace him, to help him on his quest to restore the United States to what it should be its position. And that is a, a beacon of, of hope and example for people around the world. He does have weaknesses as well. James, does any part of you knowing Vice President Biden, have concerns that he might be a bit past it? Well, first of all, he's a human being. So tell me one human being that doesn't have a weakness. And, and his weaknesses are almost like maybe he is gaff-prone, or he's too honest in his statement sometimes, or he's too human. Th these are the kind of weaknesses we almost would love to have for a while. I mean, yeah, his, his, his weakness is... He tends to think the best of people. And maybe that's a weakness we need. But, but he's not the youngest guy to ever run for president. He's probably not the most well-read person to ever run for president. He probably doesn't have the highest IQ of anybody to run for president. But he, what he does have is a real, real life and political experience and a real human heart. And right now, I think the United States and the world would be delighted to take those qualities. From the Democrats' perspective, how much of a risk is voter suppression heading into November? Uh, it's a real risk. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's a very real risk. It's something that we're forewarned about. Uh, people are worried about it. We're going to do everything we can. It's, it, it's really odd that this democracy has been around for so long doesn't fully appreciate the right to vote. But I think people are going to be very aggressive, and it, it, it is a real concern, and it, it is good that you brought it up. But we're, we're forewarned, so I think we'll do a little bit better than we did in 2016. And you referenced this earlier, James. Whether it's at the start of next year with a new inauguration after November's election or, indeed, in four years' time, after the Trump presidency... What do you see the state of politics in the United States being? Do you think we will revert to a, a pre-Trumpian era or have, have politics been fundamentally changed for, for the good? Look, right now we have a giant infected wisdom tooth. Let's get the wisdom tooth out and we'll talk about our diet going forward. But right now the nation is in pain and I, uh, I'll, I'll be glad to come back on your show and... December of this year and talk about where I think American politics is going. But right now, we've got to get this wisdom tooth out of here. It's hurting, man. It's hurting bad. <laughs> we would love to have you back on the show in December. Thank you so much for your time and expertise, you, James. We really appreciate it. You bet. You have a wonderful country. I'm going to come there one day. Thank you very much. That is the raging Cajun, James Carville. Kuomotu, that's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And Namahikia Kotuia Koto Panui. Thank you for your contributions. Marae is next. They're checking in on Māori communities in Northland affected by the recent flooding. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey Tera Wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.